right. Welcome to One Non Blonde. I'm your host, Kim. And uh, today I have a really great special guest. I have Jack O'Halloran, a uh, legend in the Hollywood as well as boxing, as well as author. He's like a renaissance man. Welcome, Jack. How are you doing today? I'm doing the best I can, whatever will let me get away with. <laughs> I'm sorry I interrupted your exercise today. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's not a problem. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll just go back when we get done. No big deal. Yeah, so the more, the, um, merrier. <laughs> the more I do, the better it is for me. To the truth. Yeah, so I, you know, you look great. Um, so what do you do for like an exercise routine? You just like, I I have a bike that I that I do a stationary bike, and I do a lot of tai chi and isometrics and stuff. You know, uh, I just keep myself as as uh, as fit as I can. You know, I'm I'm used to doing it all my life. So. So it's uh, just a, if I didn't do it, I'd feel bad. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's one of them yeah. things that you just a habit that I've been done. Like I, I probably do about two or 3,000 isometrics a day, different variations of it and stuff, even while I'm sitting down. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, because you started out as a, as a boxer. So I'm assuming that you just kind of like kept that like you said, that regime going to keep yourself. Yeah, well, I, I was actually, I just started when I was a kid, when I was, when I was playing high school football and stuff. And uh, I had a mentor around me that uh, taught me uh, judo and a lot of different things. And, uh, and then when I was um, playing sports and I got into disciplines that, uh, that did me a lot of good. And when I was in my twenties, when I first started boxing, I had a friend of mine, who was in Rhode Island and he was uh, an Italian kid whose father was the banker for Raymond Patriarch. And he brought a guy in from China to teach us a, a discipline. Uh, in fact, they had to smuggle the guy out of China. It was funny, but the guy was brilliant. And, um, and we studied a, a, an art of a Pacwa and I've been doing that for like, my gosh, over 40 years, 50 years, I guess. So it's just you get into the habit of doing things and traditionally put your body through certain workouts and just becomes a, an everyday part of eating and part of getting dressed and part of your daily routine. Kind of like a muscle memory situation. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> you know, then boxing, I get into boxing. Uh, when Ali won the title, I said to some people, I think I can beat that guy. And I was supposed to play pro football and I left there and went into boxing and and did that for several years. And while I was in boxing, they came to me to do, uh, Steve McQueen had a, a picture of Thomas Crown Affair he did in Boston in the 60s. And we took care of him when he came to Boston, looked after him, and he and I became really good friends. And he said, oh, you got to come down on the set, man. You then come to Hollywood, we'll have a good time. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, I don't, uh, I don't think this is for me at the time. And, and he said, oh, man, you got to do this. And we, you know, so I went past on that. Then 1968, I knocked out a guy in L.A. He was number two ranked in the world. And I'm looking to fight Ali. And they, they offered me a picture, The Great White Hope, which is the biggest movie in Hollywood at the time with mm -hmm. James Earl Jones. And um, they thought the deal was just done. I was just going to sign a contract. And I turned that down. And they were amazed. James Earl Jones was the he and I became good friends already. Never met anybody that told Hollywood to take a picture and stick it. It was that big, <laughs> you know. So, I, and then I, when I retired from boxing, I 
they offered me Farewell My Lovely with Robert Mitchum. And I said, you know, maybe it's time I do this. And I did a screen test and Mitchum saw the test and he said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. And I, so I blame it all on Robert Mitchum. Yeah, and you were Moose, right? Moose yeah. <laughs> Malloy. Yeah. That's the first picture I did. Great movie, actually. Yeah, I love this because I, when I studied um, American, um, my, my degrees in American uh, American studies, and we did a lot on the film noirs and all this with that. So those are just amazing movies. You know, it's just like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Farewell was a, was a really nice, I mean, it had a great cast, a great writer. You know, the music was dynamite. It was, uh, it just did it very well. It worked, mm -hmm. worked out well. It's just sad that. Afco Embassy didn't have the money to really promote it properly, yeah. which, was a, which was kind of a bummer. But it, uh, you know, it worked out well. And then, then I did King Kong with Jessica Lange, and that was a long, drawn-out nine months that we we, play, we played on that picture. And, and then Watcher died, and the Superman movies. It came to me to do the Bond movies. I turned them down because I was getting ready to do Superman. So, uh, you know, it all worked out well. So of all the movies you did, what was your like favorite movie that you did and why? Farewell, My Lovely. It was my relationship with Mitchum. And it was just, uh, I mean, it's like taking your first walk in the park, you know. It was, a, it was a great experience. And he made it even greater. And he really uh, opened my eyes up to the industry. You know, for someone that I had never never been in front of a camera, you know, other than doing commercials for television when mm -hmm. I was boxing. But uh, as far as movies are concerned and stuff, you know, it was a whole brand new kettle of fish. And, and Mitchum was very smart about it because he arranged for them to pick him up in the morning and then they came and got me and we went down to the set together in a car. And he had me laughing all the way down and telling me stories and stuff. And, uh, and he knew he'd, he'd see me fight. And, I had only met him once, but we, you know, became very fast friends, and we talked about a lot of things. He knew a lot about my background and uh, where I came from, and all. And we got down on the set on the very first shot that I ever did in my life. And we're waiting to walk up these steps to go into this shot, and he said to me, "Did you read that script, kid?" And I said, "Yeah, man, read it." I said, "I know your part, Charlotte Rampling, you know." John Ireland, Harry Dean Stanton. I said, I the cover to cover. He said, good, throw it in the trash can. I said, what? He said, do not let me catch you doing what thousands of people in this town do, acting. Just be you. Take that character, stick it in yourself, and walk down the street like you. He said, how many gangster things have you done in your life? A lot. He said, so just be yourself. And, uh, and, and, and I remember we did the very first shot that I ever did. And they started moving the camera around. And I said to him, what's the deal, man? He said, you really don't know, do you? I said, well, what am I asking? He said, that's it. I said, that's all there is to this stuff? He said, yeah. I said, man, I'm a star. <laughs> and yes, he, star. <laughs> and he made that a tagline. And, you know, and then he, whoops, what did I lose you? No, you still, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I so he, uh, whoa. What's going Robert on? Yeah. So he, you know, he, he just, then I said to him a little after that, I said, you know, what is the definition of a star? And he said, it's a word called presence. Either you have a presence on that screen or you don't. He said, and they can't teach that to you. That's something you just naturally have. The camera falls in love with you. 
And he taught me how to look through the camera, not stare at it, but look through it. And he taught me a lot of things that I needed to know technically. And, and it all worked out extremely well. And the, uh, so to me, it was like a cakewalk. It was a lot of fun going to work. Every day I learned something new with him. And it was kind of cool, you know. That's good. Yeah, because I, you know, like Robert Mitchum, I think he was like one of the a really amazing actor, you know, and and oh, yeah. and that's so great to and to you know the people you've worked with, like James Earl Jones, like you said, as a friend. I mean, you so you you have. Well, like, you know, I've been lo very lucky. I, I mean, I did. I mean, we did King Kong with Jeffrey Bridges. Mm -hmm. Charlie Grodin's a great kid, and Jessica was her first picture, which you knew she was going to be a star when she walked on the set. And her and I became very good friends. Jesse's a sweetheart of a lady. And so I worked with a lot of great people. And then I, you know, I did, I worked with Gene Hackman and a lot of people from Italy, Marcel Bazzuffi, and uh, we, we did March or Die. And there was a lot of great actors that were involved in that. And then we went on and did Superman. And, you know, you got Brando. Brando and I became close friends and, uh, and Hackman again. And, and Sharon Stamp is a brilliant actor. From England and, uh, mm -hmm. and Sarah Douglas and Valerie Perrine and Margot Kidder, you know. So I've been very lucky. And then I did a picture with uh, Jimmy Coburn and Omar Sharif, and Omar was a mind blower. Omar was great. I loved him. He was a good guy. And then I did a picture with Chuck Norris, and you know. So I've got a chance to work with a bunch of people in the industry, and uh, it's very good, you know. So do you think that um, your boxing kind of like, I know like sometimes like even celebrities have like um, a, uh, they love other celebrities in another genre in another kind of industry. So do you think that boxing kind of helped parlay your career and that opened doors for you? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it helped uh, the doors, the doors in the film industry, boxing helped open them up. Uh, there's some people in, uh, in, in, in the family, uh, mafia families that were very much behind me getting into the business. Uh, they're the ones who put the deal together with 20th Century Fox for me to do uh, The Great White Hope. And, uh, and I didn't realize how much they pushed that door open uh, until after I turned it down. I had to go home and explain why I didn't want to do it. Because uh, Raymond Patriarca was a very powerful man. And, and he's the one that said, you know, he goes he does the movie but i had the talent and they knew that so it was, they thought it was a cakewalk for me to do it and so i you know it just um my from boxing i had great timing and that helped me in the industry and of course you have no fear so there's no, you're not worried about anything you know and and it was like mitchum said to me the very first day we we're up on a shot he said see all those guys behind the camera over there i said yeah he said don't ever let them bother you because when that lens goes on, they all work for you. They can be replaced. You're on celluloid, kid. They can't replace you. So, and I said, well, I'm not worried about them anymore. But, you know, but that's good things for people to tell you, you know, it's, uh, it just, uh, man, it was a great experience. And, then, and every time I did a picture, I did it with people I wanted to do. I did pictures that I wanted to do. I had the option to pick and choose. I turned down a few things I shouldn't have probably, but uh, I just, um, you know, I felt that if you're going to work in a business, be happy about who you're working with, what you're doing. 
and uh, it worked out. And I did some television things, which I really wasn't a big uh, deal for television, but I, having that presence helped their shows. And I didn't realize that until later on. And, but I did television shows as a favor to people that came to me and said, would you please, you know, give us a shot in the arm and do this show. And, and I said, yeah, and Fred Dreyer did, I did one with him and Angela Lansbury and some other people. So, you know, it, uh, I had a lot of fun and now I'm not done. I just, we're getting ready to do the family legacy deal. And we're going to do, I got three more books we're going to come out with and we'll do films on that. And we were interfacing Charlie Luciana's life which with his son and his book with the Charlie Luciana, Last Testament of Charles Luciana. And, and the series will be a mind blower. The television series will cover a lot of area. So, Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I know, like you said, you have the, the uh, mafia influence. So I know you and I talked on the phone before. And, um, you know, I think when you come from a descendant of like um, the immigrants, especially in that time frame, like uh, my grandfather came over in like 19, like 16, 19, 17 from Italy. Um, and it's like, you know, um, it, it, there were all this island. And so I'm only a second generation uh, Italian American. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know about you, but like when I was dating, sometimes people would say, oh, well, her family's from the mafia. Well, no, my family really wasn't from the mafia, but it was kind of like a stereotype, but your family was yeah. from the mafia. <laughs> so yeah, how, that, how was, was that growing up, you know? My father was one of the most powerful men that ever came in the country. And, uh, and I never really knew. I knew something was wrong because I, I was, a, I was a, a product of a love affair. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was... In 1942, 41-42, and when they were looking for him everywhere in New York, he was in Pennsylvania at Indian Gap at, a, at an army base as a sergeant teaching soldiers how to be longshoremen. And, and that's a funny story, actually. He's there hiding out in actuality, so, but he never spent the night in the barracks. He was down in Philadelphia every night, because, and that's where he met my mother, and, and I was a product of that. But, um, but the police captain <laughs> in in New York, I mean, the, the captain of his platoon at the at the army barracks saw all these articles in the paper about this Albert Anastasia guy, and he called the police in New York, and he said, this Anastasia guy you're all looking for, he said, I, I have him right here in my army. And the guy said, what did you say? He said, Albert Anastasia, I read these papers, and you guys are looking for him everywhere. Well, he's right here in my army. And the guy said, hold on a second. And he came back on the phone. He said, ah, we're not really looking for Albert. He said, that's all media stuff. That's how much power they had, you know? Yeah. So the guy, the captain, just, you know, he was kind of befuddled by himself. But, but he, um, it was an era that uh, we'll never see again, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what I've learned from coming up in that world and, and uh, being uh, close to him, and I, you know, being uh, what you call in, in our nationality, a, a made individual when I was 19 and I've lived under the oath of America all my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I respect it and I live that way. And, and I think that what's missing in our society today is the word respect. You know, people don't respect themselves, how are they gonna respect anybody else? And, and everybody's doing this social media on phones and stuff and nobody sees anybody eyeball to eyeball anymore. You know, they, they don't look at people who they're dealing with. And, 
and there's a lot of bad relationships that come out of that and you know people trying to make a relationship over the internet and stuff and um i'm a, i'm a believer of i want to look you in the eye when i do business with you so old no, school. i agree i agree no because like you know for me i agree with you on the respect idea because i i see people will like just put something out there on the internet and just like be hurtful and and not care how they're hurting people and and you know and and that's one thing that like being in a you know my my grandfather because who came over from Italy, one of the things she always taught us was that our reputation and you can't buy that and you nope. can't and you and, right. and you know and also to be respectful i mean I, that's something that you know I to this day I remember my grandparents, my mom, all my, you know, everybody's always, it's always about the respect, the respect of the family, respect right. of, you know, of, of what it means to have a patriarch and a, you know, and a matriarch and, and how you, it, I think, I don't know if it's just ingrained in us, but it's something that's really important. Well, you know, I don't know how you were raised, probably can imagine from what hearing you, but when I was a kid at six o'clock at night, you better be sitting at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And the whole family ate together, and they looked you in the eye, and they knew what you were up any tomfoolery, and you know what. Uh, so there was a much closer unity within families, and all. You know, you couldn't escape anything. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. I agree. In fact, like uh, I, one of my, um, I have five kids of my own, and and we always had dinner, and even you know. You have five me. children. Yeah. You do? Yeah. My God, you don't look like you just got out of high school. I wish my youngest is 23 and my oldest is 31. Get out of here. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. I oh, have God, a good you... life. It's the genes. <laughs> I'll tell you, they're pretty good, girl. I swear to God. You look like a young kid out of high school. Jeez, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's true. Five children. My God. God bless you. Thanks. But we always have dinner at the table. In fact, you know, when they come up, when the ones that can still come over because they're all adults now and they're all over. But yeah dinner and my one daughter her boyfriend we were going somewhere and he pulls out his his uh game boy thing whatever and he's and i said oh i guess jesse didn't tell you that when we do like trips we talk <laughs> you know yeah. we, we don't just you know plug into something we, we yeah. I, you know <laughs> yeah that's a different experience for people that's for sure Oh, most definitely. And that's what I want to do with my podcast. My podcast, I really want it to be about conversation because I think it's a lost art. I think the respect of people. Oh, it's a great they, idea. You know, you it's know. really, you know, if you get people to, to really be honest with themselves. And, you know, it's like I tell people every day, you know, you got to look in the mirror and mm -hmm. see if you can look eyeball to eyeball to that guy in the mirror and be honest with yourself. And not very many people can do that. You know, they'll look away or they'll look down or up or, you know, the, the, uh, very few people can actually look right smack into a mirror and uh, and and like what they're looking at, you know, and oh, say to the well. person, I like you today, you know, I like what you're doing and where you're going, uh, which is sad, which is very sad, but our society has changed. I mean, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, we never locked our front doors. Mm-hmm. And in the summertime, people slept out in the backyard because it was always so hot. There was no air conditioning then, you know. So you, you, nobody ever bothered anybody. You could put a baby pram out, and and when the old dons ran the neighborhoods, they were much safer. You know, people, if you committed, you wouldn't think of committing certain crimes. You know, you know somebody's going to come down on you if you did it. And so it was a whole different generation of people, you know, and people 
jumped over the railing and helped each other. And, you know, it was a, if you were in problems, somebody was always there. So it's, uh, and I'd love to see us go back to that, but you know, what's going on today with this fear that they're putting in people is just more separation of people, separating people, you know, and it's, uh, I just don't, I, I think it's very unhealthy, but I have to see what the punchline is, you know? I, I agree. No, I really, I do. I think it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's, I, I feel like the, we've lost the art of conversation. We've lost the art of true friendship, um, of re really being loyal. Loyalty. Yeah. You know, loyalty is a big thing that's gone. Yeah. You don't have that much anymore. Yeah. But uh, so with this new project, I know your book, uh, mm. Legacy, and then you said you're writing more. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to tell the truth about a lot of things that have actually happened in the country. And in Family Legacy, the book I wrote, at the end of it, I actually tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination, which, you know, everybody takes liberties with what really happened. Unless you were there and you were part of it, you know, the truth never really seems to come out, you know? Yeah. And it's like, like they just did this picture of the Irishman. Mm -hmm. and, I watched uh, it. And I knew Frank very well, you know, he was from Philadelphia. And and I knew Russell Buffalino well from Western Pennsylvania and his nephew, cousin Billy, who was a lawyer for Hoffa. And uh, Frank never killed Hoffa and he never killed Joey Gallo. But no one ever come up with a real person who did that. So Hollywood took a liberty of saying that this was the shooter, this guy, that guy. And that never really happened that way. So unfortunately. People are very gullible. I think it's so easy to just, like you said, just like kind of like, oh, let, here's a famous name. Maybe just throw that in there, you know, as you know, because no one knows what happened to, well, to Jimmy Hoffa, really, right? Well, or, they're, they're, that's not true. There's people that know exactly what happened to him. And, you know, and it's uh, one day very soon it'll all come out. I promise you. Oh, well, keep me in the, in the 411 there. <laughs> 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 I knew Jimmy well. Jimmy was a good, Jimmy Hoffa was an amazing individual. He would never ask you to do what he wouldn't do himself. And, you know, for them to put him away for taking $8,000 from the pension fund, there would have been no pension fund if it wasn't for Hoffa. And he never took money out of there ill-advised. That wasn't Jimmy. Mm -hmm. Jimmy. Jimmy wasn't that type of person. So it was a it was more like a setup, you know? And when he thought he went to jail, and I remember you're too young. Well, I guess you're not that young, five children. Do you remember I, I when Hopper went to jail? I just turned 54, Saturday. Do you remember when Hopper went to jail? Uh, you probably, were a baby. I was yeah, a baby, you were, you were, so, okay. yeah. When he went to jail, every Teamster and their trucks lined up all the way to Lewisburg, honking their horns as he went by. You know, and and I remember a guy from Boston that called him on the phone, the last phone call, and said to him, you know, Jimmy, you really don't have to go to jail. Every teamster in the country will walk off his job. And he said, listen, I'm an American. If, they, if I did a crime, I'll do the time. Because he thought he was going to go in and come right out. And unfortunately, he backed the wrong president. And uh, and he spent a few years there. And, and the deal that he made, he shouldn't have made to get out. and. Uh, when he came out, he went right into his office and 
told Fitzsimmons to pack his bag. And he said, Jimmy, you can't be here. You're going to get us all locked up. You know, you have a deal with the government that you have to leave the union alone for X amount of time. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he didn't want to hear that and called some people in New York. And he said, I want my union back. And they said, Jimmy, take your time. Everything will work out. Just take it easy. I don't want to hear that. I want it back now. And he uh, kept jamming and jamming. And then he got into the Teamster loans. And, they, and every one of those loans were paid back. Said, when you wanted money, I gave it up to you. And this and that, blah, 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 blah. And then he made the statement that killed him. He said, I'll go to the newspapers. And the guy in New York hung the phone up. You know, that was his death. That was unfortunate. Yeah. He, um, he just went off the rails. He, you know, he, and, and it was sad because he was dead on the money. You know, when he went to jail, the government took over the Teamsters. They moved right in. And Fitzsimmons was very weak. And they, they blew up his son's car and scared the hell out of all of them. So and that would have never bothered Jimmy. They wouldn't have, you know, done that. So, and they infiltrated the the unions, and you know, it, just, it was the teamsters have never been the same since. Yeah, I think that a lot of the unions, like I know, like for you know, uh, my great grandfather, he had died in the coal mines in Pennsylvania. So we have like mm. a lot in common because my from my family's from Pennsylvania. They're from the Aliquippa area. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So, and uh, so he died in the coal mines. And then um, obviously, you know, my, my uncles, they were in the steel, they were in the steel mills and they Pittsburgh. were in yeah. Pittsburgh. Yeah. And they were, yeah. And they were in the union there. I know that my white my one uncle, he was like really involved in the union, like big time. And they're all, they're all from Italy, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, they, in fact, things worked out much better for a lot of people in those days, you know, and uh, it's like, you look at the auto industry and, and the guy, there was a guy named Iacocca who ran mm-hmm. Chrysler Motors. He came from a little village in Sicily and he rose right up through the ranks because he could control the unions. There was never, if there was a union problem, he could pick up a phone and boom, it was quiet. It was taken care of, you know, mm-hmm. and that was all through connections of people. So it did, I don't know. I just, uh, I didn't like the way things were going. I don't like the way things went, but I think there's some changes coming and uh, hopefully for the better, you know, for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this separation business, I'm not too keen on. Uh, you know, you look at the diseases that we've been through in this country, Amtrak's and, and even the AIDS virus. I mean, my God, the AIDS virus killed 38 million people. I know. Yeah. And, and it was, and it was when it first came out, then they said, oh, my God, you can't be in the same room with somebody. They breathe on you, you're going to catch it. Well, that was all lies. You couldn't catch AIDS unless it was blood on blood. You know, you could shake hands with people and stuff like that. And they, but they had fear they put in people, but they didn't shut the country down. You know, and a lot of people died from it. And it took a long time. It took a long time before they got... Speaking of Italy, that's Italy calling. <laughs> It took a long time for them to um, to put some things together. You know what I'm saying? So it was a. Uh, it's kind of a. You know, we we live in a in a real strange situation, and I don't like the separation. And separation actually started back in with welfare in the 50s when they, because prior to welfare, if you had a problem, you jumped over the banister on your and you talked to your neighbor. Or, Somebody in, this, in, the, in the neighborhood took care of each other. 
and then the government started giving you money, so they separated away from people. Mm-hmm. That was the first separation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I agree. And it just kind of got worse ever since. So it's uh, and the more they separate people, the more they cause confusion, and that's why the voting is so awkward. A lot of people don't vote anymore like they used to, you know. But it is what it is. I just uh, hope that uh, things will change for the better. Yeah, I work with uh, in my mother job besides podcasting. I work with a lot of immigrants, and I see that they have that that same kind of like old world, old school mentality where they will like like you said they help each other. Um, you know, I know, you know, I don't know about you, but like we always knew a guy, we always knew somebody. You know, growing up, it was like we always knew yeah. somebody. Oh, always, know? no, no, there was always somebody there to help you out doing something. You know, there was. Uh... I mean, I can I, I, I could think of so many times it would, scrapes that I would have gotten into. There was somebody there to counsel me, and you know, people looked after me because of my father for sure. But you know, you just learn. You learn by facing things and and, and facing up to what you do. And, oh, hold on one second. <laughs> hold on one second. Sure. Ciao, Max. Max, I'm doing a I'm doing a podcast show. Can I call you right back? Yeah, that's Carlo with me that we want to just wait talk to you. Oh, ciao, my friend. Ciao, Carlo. <laughs> ciao, my friend. I'm doing I'm doing a show. I'm, I'm I'm super well. I hope that you are. I'm doing a, a show on the computer, Max. I'll, I'll call you right back. Give me a little bit of time. I'll call you back. Okay. Okay. Ciao, 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 Carlo. Oh Italy. my gosh, that makes me think yeah, of a speaking funny... the devil, right? <laughs> I know. Like body over in Italy. This guy's a, this guy's a great guy. He's like a thirty-nine degree mason over there. Oh wow, and my dad was a mason. Powerful. He's a powerful guy. This guy, good guy, yeah. Yeah. good friend. <laughs> they, uh... So I, I assume now that you still keep ties with the Italian side. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Positively. So... Yeah, so with, um, you know, I know your father was a famous, you know, uh, mafia person, you know, um, did did that give you, like, um, a, you know, did that give you stigma or did it like, you, well, did it I, you know, I never you? really knew the truth until right before he was assassinated it was the first time I really met him face to face. And I never knew the truth till after he died. And then I was very angry because he died the way he died. Uh, but I fell into the hands of Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello and Charlie Luciano and, uh, and they more or less groomed and raised me, you know, so I learned how to control my temper and stuff. And, uh, they gave me some great lessons in life, you know, and they convinced me it was only business. And then they came and apologized. They said it was the worst mistake they ever made because Albert was the glue that held them together. And when they killed him, it, uh, it gave, they, in other words, when you seen the Godfather and when they went to Brando to go in the drug business and he said, uh, I have to decline because if we touch it, my children will touch it. It'd be the downfall of the family. My father said that mm-hmm. he did. He was not for the drug business. Neither were a lot of the old timers, but you know, Vito Genovese was big time for it. And because there was a lot of money involved and stuff. And, and Albert said, uh, we didn't sign up for that stuff. You no, know, it's not our deal. So it was, uh, and he was right because it hurt a lot of people. 
you know, people stop, people stop, they forgot how to make money. And they took the easy route and uh, not good. Yeah, I agree. I mean, drugs, I mean, I mean, the stuff that they were doing before, like you said, if we didn't have them, the, the unions probably wouldn't be where they are or where they were. I mean, a lot of people would have died, more people, you know, wouldn't have gotten yeah. fair wages, would have been in really serious danger. I mean, it was like a lot of things that they were doing right, you know? No, absolutely. No, they were, you know, and what we're doing, the movies that we're going to do is going to tell the truth about how in the beginning, government, industry, organized crime, and unions were all partners. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the illicit monies they made, they put back into the growth of the country. And they created a lot of jobs because their source of income was gambling, loan sharking, extortion. And if you didn't have money, how could you pay them? So they mm-hmm. made sure you went to work. You know, and they invested in companies like insurance companies and General Electric and Westinghouse and uh, they crossed the country. They helped develop the country. And uh, and they never got the light for that. You know, it's uh, sad because it, it's a true story and we're going to tell it. I think it's important because, like, even, like, if we think back of our American history in general, you know, like, a lot of people were privateers. You know, you can either call yeah. them privateers or pirates, depending on where you want to be. But, you know, like, a lot of our, you know, how we became the United States of America Depending on people who were, like you said, weren't necessarily always above board on what they were well, doing. Well, you know, if you go back to immigration, when when our parents, grandparents came into this country back in the 20s and 1900, they wanted to be American. Mm-hmm. And they learned the language. When they raised their hand, it was done in English. Um, they They wanted to be part of this country. They loved the freedom of it. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of immigration that comes in today, they rape the country. You know, they're getting cell phones for nothing. They're getting things that people who are born in this country don't have. You know, they're getting education. They're getting a lot of things that people who were born here are not privy to. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, you know, screwed around deal, I think. And uh, I just, I mean, there's a lot of people that get benefits and they send the money back to the earth original country where where they came from and not the Italians and not the, the Europeans as much as other countries. And it's, um, you know, I, they drained a lot out of the country in, in a lot of ways. And they, they wanted to keep their own, uh, their own uh, traditions. They didn't want the American way of life. They kept their own traditions. Uh, you see people from different faiths, you know, praying in the streets and everything. And, you know, kneeling down in, in, in the heart of traffic. They don't care to just, you know. And so it, it, there's a lot of things that, uh, I don't know, I think there were missed moments. I, I even said like 20 years ago, shut the borders. Just close them and be very careful who you bring in. Because a lot of the, a lot of the 9-11 stuff and a lot of weapons and stuff is all from different migrations that came into this country and trying to take the country down. Mm-hmm. and trying to make America socialistic, which it was never meant to be. You know, this is a democracy here. And we had freedom and we have, you know, and they took out away from schools, praying to God or using the word God. And I just don't understand all that. You know, it's just, uh, just thought it was a much better way of life when I was a child. 
Oh yeah, it's like um, so you were were you raised you were raised uh, Catholic or? Yeah, oh yeah, I was oh, raised yeah. In Catholic school. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah. It's <laughs> and I, and I, I mean, we had. I went to a grammar school in Philadelphia that had five thousand students in it. I mean, we had classrooms with ninety kids in them. Wow. And one nun. And know? one nun, yeah. And you could hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. I mean, she disciplined that room, boy, to a T. You know, and so it was a whole. And you, if you ever got hit at school and went home and said, "Oh, the nun hit me today," they get hit at home because what did you do? The nun had to hit you. My you mom know, was the same way. My mom was the same way. Know, it was just, yeah. uh, it was, uh, it was a whole ke different kettle of fish all the way around. You should write a book about being just going to Catholic. You and I could collaborate on, you know, going to Catholic school and raised with that. So. I mean, it was. I mean, when you think about sitting in a room with ninety students and learning, yeah, you learn, you learn and how you to learn. read and write. You know, one of the things that that I didn't agree with. But it still taught you something was the fact that you had to memorize everything. Mm -hmm. You know, hear your catechism in the front of the room, and so you were you were into play, playing like a puppet. But you know, but it's still you were still forcing you to read. You yeah. It's just, uh, and you read a lot more. You did book reports on things that you read and stuff, and so the educational level was a lot better, I thought. You know, when I was a kid. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the Catholic school system, one of the reasons it started, especially in the United States, um, was for people like immigrant children who couldn't, wouldn't have necessarily gotten a good education in the public school system. Well, and you have to understand something. The Catholic Church was a big part of the mafia. Oh, yeah. yeah, and, uh, yeah. People don't understand it. Every one of those, you go look around the cities in America and the parishes, the churches, and especially the cathedrals were on prime real estate and they paid no tax to anybody and they were very much protected. The families protected those, those churches. You wouldn't dare think of doing something against the Catholic church in your neighborhood. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like in the last 20 years though, that all changed. There were robbing churches and stuff like that. And, you know, but I, when I was a kid, whoa, you would, you would, you would not even contemplate that would be a bad idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so with the new with your new book your new tv series where where and when is this tv series going to be uh are you starting well, we're to get, filming we're it in already? the midst of working on it now so when we get rid of this cloak that we have on us we'll go mm -hmm. forward pretty much and within a year it'll be up and running so it'll take probably about a year or to get totally where we want it and then it'll just be there's so much information. I mean, it could run for 20 years, way after I'm gone. I'm going to do a lot of tapes and put a lot of friends of mine. And there's a lot of friends I have across the country that are in their 80s and 90s that want to tell the truth before they leave out. You know? I think I think it's gonna. You know, I think that would be really amazing. I I'm, if you ever need somebody to play anybody kind of middle aged, like, you know, looks a kind with of five Italian, kids with five <laughs> kids. Hey, I. That's been my dream all my life. I wanted to be an actress. And now I'm like, I'm so old. No one's going to take me. <laughs> not that old, kid. You don't look that old. That's for sure. I yeah. I guess I could pass off as look. You know, taking a younger part. You know, it's like to me, it's like it's. This is that's why I started this podcast because it's like I wanted to do something. 
that has to do with Hollywood. And I'm like, well, this is one way to kind of get to know people because I'm fascinated, fascinated with the movies. I'm fascinated by the industry. I'm fascinated by, you know, people who yeah, formed yeah. it and made it. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep you in mind then for sure. Oh, please do. And if you know anybody else who wants to come talk to me about the truth and just kind of having these conversations, I would love for you to invite them over. And of course, I'd love to have you back on again, too. Anytime. You just let me know, pal. Anytime oh, definitely. The next time I won't bother you on your bike. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh my, my fault. I didn't... No, it's all good. It's all good. So, um, so you have any favorite, I was just, while we're sitting here talking about Italian stuff, all I can think of is, do you have like a favorite Italian food recipe that you got going on? <laughs> I'm a calamari lover. I love calamari. I, I love pasta and calamari is my favorite dish. To eat. You know, I'm a, and, and, I, and I've been to Sicily where the calamari comes right out of the water. 20 minutes mm. later, it's on your plate and full calamari, not just chopped up, you know. And it's a whole different experience, really. Trust me. Was that? Do you do it like you don't do it fried? You, I'm assuming you do it with the olive oh, oil. Oh, sauteed. Yeah, I'm sauteed with the olive and oil. garlic and oil. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I think the fried is like that's American. It makes it tough up. It's, it toughens it, I think. Yeah. You know, I just, no, I like it sauteed in, in oil and garlic. Yeah. In fact, I'm getting hungry thinking about it. <laughs> What I made for dinner tonight, I made, um, I took some chicken breast and I took um, garlic, a lot of garlic, of course, and then of course the basil and the oregano and all that stuff. And, and then I See, took- There's oregano. Yeah. A lot of people don't know about oregano. You know, and oregano is a great spice, boy. Okay. But you gotta know, you really gotta know how to cook with it, you know? Oh yeah, most definitely. I, I have a little herb garden and I have some rosemary. Do you make gravy? Do you make your own gravy? Yeah, I try to. Yeah. My grandma's like, oh my gosh, my grandmother. Oh my gosh. My grandmother was one of those people that <laughs> <laughs> she could, she would make, people would, you know, during the depression, my grandparents yeah. never, they always had money and they yeah. had a house. And one of the things was, is that she would take all of her like rations, like the, for the, yeah. um, and she would make homemade gravies and homemade pastas and meatball people would come over and buy from her and it's like now i wish that she would have like you know like i always joke is like she could have been bigger than chef boyardee you know well when i like when i make gravy it, it's it's an all-day experience yeah you know, I, this 20 minute gravy is not my stick no uh, and, and i learn and I, I teach you something night before and i only know how to make it in a huge 30 gallon pot i don't know of how to course. make small pots but I, the night before i put some olive oil in the pot and uh and i take some and i use white wine and, mm. and bowl of suave is a good one to use and and i put all the herbs and, and all the herbs have to be fresh nothing come out of any bottles or nothing i chopped the and i put all the herbs in and uh and, and saute them and then let it sit until the next morning then i start making my gravy you know and uh, it uh, puts a flavor that's unbelievable and, mm, i'm about to try that now go, go, when you go to the store there are tomatoes imported from italy mm -hmm. and the reason why they're better than what's on the shelf is because there's no acid in them they're packed in water you understand mm -hmm. and uh and much better flavor in the tomatoes. And you gotta have, and when you're stirring it, you gotta stand there, you know, you can't, 
gotta stand there and constantly stir it and, and, and move it around the pot and, because it it enhances the flavors and you never let it set on the bottom. You keep moving it. Oh, because it'll uh, burn. Oh, not only that, but it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's much better, much better way to play. And it, um, so it's like, oops, speaking of food. My Italian mama, you know. Oh, do you put do you put the rind of the um the the um some parmesan cheese or anything like that in it pecorino or anything when no you're... i don't put any cheese in it until and, and i i never put cheese on fish and gravy mm -hmm. and I, I make a marinara gravy and then you can use it for anything you can mm. add chicken to it you can add meat to it and if you make a bolognese gravy then you're you're sauteing the meat and everything meat, before. yeah but so what kind of meat you do make, you use? If you make a marinara gravy, then you can use it for anything. You don't, you know, you can put meat later on, chicken later on, you know, whatever you want. You know, Parmesan cheese, I like. Oh, I do too. I do too. Like yeah, I said, my chicken right now. Mozzarella. I love mozzarella. Oh, fresh. Oh my gosh, it's yeah, the best. Yeah, you got to go somewhere where they have it swimming in water, you know? Oh, I know. It's like, well, there's like a little, there's a, a little Italian market and the guy, his name's Anthony. And he makes it fresh. And when it's hot, and it's like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. good. Good thing of bread, some olive oil. Oh, my gosh. Fresh oh, herbs. good, kid. Yeah. So, okay. So, Jack, when all this stuff is done, I'm going to have to figure out a way that either you're going to come down here and make gravy for me, or I'm going to come to you. <laughs> and we're, we're going to tape it, and we're going to do a little cooking show. How's that good done? Good idea. Great idea. With Jack. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's cool. <laughs> oh my gosh, it has been so much fun. Okay, um, you you be well, young lady. If you need anything, just call me. Anytime you want to do this, just let me know. Oh, thank you so much, Jack. It has been a pleasure. And you've been listening to One Non Blonde and an opportunity to learn the truth, as we heard tonight from Jack. And as well, we got a, a great uh, gravy recipe. So <laughs> God bless and stay well.